Beloved, we will this morning read from three passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament and two from the New. Our text is Isaiah 40, a well-known chapter, Isaiah 40, the verses 9 through 11. So we'll begin by reading Isaiah 39, verse 5 to 40, verse 11. Isaiah 39, verse 5 to 40, verse 11. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Comfort, comfort, sorry, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight into the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arm, and carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Thus far from Isaiah. Next, we'll read about John the Baptist in Matthew 3, Matthew 3, verse 1 through 6. Now, John the Baptist is a remarkable character. He's described as the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's presented in the New Testament as the herald who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah made in the verses that come just before our text. So we'll read Matthew 3, the verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, 
and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That's far from Matthew. Next we'll turn to the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. We'll read from chapter 1, the verses 3 through 11. Now here the Apostle Paul, he reflects on the words of our text in order to find comfort in the midst of his own trials and tribulations. Essentially, and I hope this will become clear this morning, essentially the apostle, he applies the words of this ancient prophecy to find strength in his time of need. And he becomes therefore also a good example for us as one who submits himself to the Lord's plan of salvation. So read the verses 3 to 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we were despairing even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Thus far, our reading for this morning. Our text, as I mentioned, is from Isaiah 40. Specifically, the verses 9 through 11 will also be going through some of the earlier verses, so it might help for you to have your Bibles open to this passage. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, now you've all heard the expression, I'm sure, don't judge a book by its cover, or perhaps appearances can be deceiving. And these expressions, they warn against making a superficial judgment. You could say a judgment based on first impressions. And they serve as a good reminder for those of us who live by faith. They're helpful. 
expressions. For example, what are your impressions of John the Baptist? If you found yourself in a desolate place and you met a man who looked like John and who spoke like John, what would you think? In the Gospels, John is described in very strange terms. In fact, the New Testament makes something of a spectacle of his appearance. It's mentioned, his appearance is mentioned in both Matthew and Mark and Jesus himself, in Matthew 11 and in Luke 7. Jesus himself draws attention, our attention, to John's appearance. What did you expect, he says, what did you expect of a man living in the desert? Who did you expect to see? A man wearing fine clothes? No. As we read John, he wore a garment of camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. John was an unusual man. You could say he was a little rough around the edges, unrefined and not presentable. But he came as a herald of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, an eternal kingdom, a glorious kingdom. He came, John came, wearing camel's hair as a herald of the king himself. The way he's described, John is not the kind of representative that you might expect. And yet, he was entrusted with the most significant message that this world has ever known a message of comfort, a message of hope and consolation for the people of God. Now, brothers and sisters, something very similar is going on in our text, in our passage from Isaiah. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that lonely and broken and despised city, will herself become a herald of God's salvation bringing a message of comfort and reconciliation and restoration to all those around her. You see, through Isaiah, God comforts His chosen city, His special city, and then He directs her to bring a message of comfort to the surrounding cities. This is the wonder of our text that we will reflect on this morning. A comforted city will be a herald of good news. So this morning we'll pay close attention first to the herald herself, Jerusalem, the city Jerusalem, and then we will consider the resounding message, the message that she brings. So first, the herald herself. Our chapter this this morning, chapter 40, it begins a new prophecy in the book of Isaiah. This chapter, it's the first in a new series of oracles. You see, the book of Isaiah, it can be divided into two parts. The first part, the chapters 1 through 35, the first part deals with contemporary issues. So these prophecies, they reflect the political situation of the world at the time when Isaiah lived. They were written about the specific nations and the rulers that lived during the time of Isaiah. And with these oracles, God used His prophet, He used Isaiah to warn His people about events that would soon come to pass, soon, even within their own lifetime. And these events, these events would happen 
according to God's righteous judgment. This is the main theme of the first 35 chapters. From His throne in heaven, God sees the sin of the world, and He plans to intervene in the history of the world. We can think of Psalm 68, what is said there, God shall arise, and by His might come to bring a terrible judgment against the world as a righteous king of the world. He comes to bring a terrible judgment, first against His people, as is clear in these prophecies, the people of Israel and Judah, but then also against every nation on earth in both chapters 24 and 34. Now, Isaiah himself, he lived during the fulfillment of many of these early prophecies. Many of these prophecies refer to the Assyrians. The Assyrians, and in the 8th century BC, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire rose to power and they came and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Perhaps you remember from church history. After the first part of the book then, which discussed the Assyrian invasion, there are four chapters which form something of a historic interlude. These are the chapters 36 and 39, Isaiah 36 through 39. Here we have two short narratives, two short narratives that are taken from the book of two kings, two kings 19 and 20. It's almost exactly the same. And these short narratives are set in a particular context. You see, both relate a special deliverance that is worked by God on behalf of His people. And both now, they focus our attention as the reader on Jerusalem. They both focus on Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, a single city in the nation of Judah, a special city, God's chosen city. So the first account, it describes a national deliverance. That same Assyrian army which had just destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel was now encamped on the doorstep of Jerusalem. This is in chapter 36. The city stands alone and stands helpless. She is the last city standing, you could say. There is no earthly hope for deliverance. Their destruction is certain. But God intervenes. He intervenes in mercy. He comes and He comes to rescue His people. He defeats the Assyrian army. He saves Jerusalem from destruction. And so they are, in a manner of speaking, they're given new life. They've received new life. Now, the second account, which comes immediately after, this is chapters 38 and 39. The second account, it's a story about personal deliverance. It's about the king of Judah, the king of Jerusalem, Hezekiah himself. Hezekiah born in the line of David. Hezekiah becomes very sick, and he receives a sentence of death from Isaiah. The disease running its course would eventually kill him. And again, as, as, the, as the account is written, again, there is no earthly hope for deliverance. There is no earthly hope for restoration or healing, but in His mercy and in response to heartfelt prayer, God restores Hezekiah to life, to health, even adding 15 years to his life. Beloved, it's a remarkable testament to God's deliverance. But consider now how this story ends. This will bring us to chapter 40. You see, chapter 38, it ends with a song that is written by Hezekiah. In this song, Hezekiah, 
He praises God for his restoration and he pledges himself. Hezekiah pledges himself to the honor of God. We can reference chapter 38, verse 20, for example. He says, the Lord will save me and then we will play music every day of our lives at the house of the Lord in the temple. Then immediately following, at the beginning of chapter 39, we read that this new life that Hezekiah had received from God as a gracious gift, this new life was used to honor himself rather than God. When the envoys came from Babylon, Hezekiah honored himself, his own achievements, his own wealth. Beloved, twice God demonstrates His mercy. Twice He worked a remarkable deliverance for His people in Jerusalem. Twice the people are taught to trust in God alone. God had delivered them from a deadly peril, and He would deliver them again. We can think of the words of the Apostle Paul that we read in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10. But as was so often the case in the history of God's people, Hezekiah did not honor God according to the grace that he had received. And so he begins to rely upon himself, looking for security in a foreign alliance with Babylon, trusting in his own influence and prestige and wealth. And so, as we read, God's wrath now falls upon Hezekiah and Judah and Jerusalem. And Isaiah brings another message of judgment, this time against Jerusalem herself, Jerusalem, that city of God, saved from the Assyrians, would be destroyed by the Babylonians, and her people would be taken into captivity. Jerusalem, that city on a hill, would be broken, put to fire. She would be emptied of her people and her princes. Her walls would be leveled, and the temple would be destroyed. She would be truly and utterly despised and rejected. She would become a spectacle for all to see. This is where we are left at the end of chapter 39, a prophecy of judgment against Jerusalem for all her sins. But now, now in the second book, the second part of this book, the book of Isaiah, now Isaiah brings another prophecy, another prophecy about events far in the future, Events that he would never see fulfilled. In these chapters, he looks even beyond the Babylonian exile. These prophecies, these are different, wonderfully different than the prophecies that came before because they, they resound with words of reconciliation and restoration and return. You see, the main theme now is comfort. Comfort in the midst of distress and tribulation. Comfort. In chapter 40, the verses 1 through 2, Isaiah is given a glimpse. He is given a glimpse of God's wonderful plan for the future. Verse 1 puts the words of God beside the secret thoughts of Hezekiah, or the words of Hezekiah as we have in the New King James Version. The words of God right beside the words of Hezekiah. Hezekiah thinks only of himself and his time. His own days, as it says in chapter 39, verse 8. He doesn't think about the future of his people. He's not thinking about the future of his city. He's not even thinking about the future of his own children. But now through Isaiah, 
God reveals what He is thinking about. God reveals His concern for the future generations of His people. God brings a message of future consolation to His people. He brings words of comfort to the coming generations of His covenant people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Brothers and sisters, this is a remarkable testament to the character of our God. He is faithful. He is faithful and He cares about the future of His people. He has plans for His people, plans that include judgment against sin, but plans that do not end with judgment, plans that end in restoration and reconciliation and peace. Beloved, God has plans for His people that end in peace. This is Isaiah's message to the people. God is perfectly just and holy. Sin will not go unpunished, but He is also a God of peace, a God of peace who desires reconciliation with His people. And now in these prophecies, God reveals something of His plan. Many years later, these words of Hezekiah, they would bring hope to the hearts of the people who languished in exile in Babylon, Babylon so far from home. Those people, they could read these words. They had this prophecy in Babylon. They could read these words, and they could look forward to a time, to a day of deliverance and return. They could live in faith and in hope of the promise. And because of what these words revealed about the covenant faithfulness of our Lord, they also they bring hope to us. This is nothing less than God's steadfast love and faithfulness on full display. Even before the judgment was experienced by the people of Jerusalem, even before repentance was made, God plans a restoration for His people. This is what our passage reveals. God has a plan. He has a vision for His church. And His plans for His people, they end in peace. Beloved, as New Testament Christians, we can draw incredible comfort from how the Bible ends. How does the Bible end? The Jews exiled in Babylon, they had received the prophecies of Isaiah. They had the written prophecies of Isaiah to reflect upon. We have the revelation of John the Apostle, the last book in the Bible, the revelation of John, the final prophecy, the end of the revelation of God's good plan of salvation, His vision for His church. And how does it end? How does Revelation end? Revelation 21 and 22. For the people of God, it ends in perfect peace. It ends in perfect reconciliation and a perfect restoration. It ends with a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Beloved, God has plans for His church, plans that we can glimpse to the prophecies that we have received. You see, for, for the earthly city of Jerusalem, during the time of Isaiah, God's plan, it, it included a complete restoration. This is the promise that is revealed in Isaiah. It's a promise that is later filled out by the, the later prophets during the time of the exile. 
Jerusalem would be rebuilt. The temple, once destroyed, it would be restored. The Lord would return to Zion to dwell in her midst, and He would bring back the people to dwell in Jerusalem. The people would return to their home. They would return to Zion to dwell in her midst. Her streets would no longer be empty, you could say, as we can read in Zechariah 8, verse 4 and 5. There it says, it's a wonderful picture of restoration. Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the city, it says, will be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. God would gather His people together from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, wherever they had been dispersed, drawing them back into the city of Jerusalem. And He would come to live with them. He would be their God, and they would be His people. This is the comfort that Jerusalem receives at the beginning of chapter 40. And the verses that follow, they are rich with allusions to a return from exile. In fact, Isaiah here, he describes that return like a second exodus. A highway is made through the wilderness for the redeemed to return to Zion. Mountains are made low. Valleys are lifted up because, as it says in chapter 40, verse 3, because God Himself will go with His people. As He had done in the past from Egypt, He would do again from Babylon, bringing His people safely to His city. And now coming to verse 9, verse 9 of our passage, Jerusalem, comforted with this promise, is now instructed. She is instructed to become a messenger of this good news to the cities around her. One of the remarkable features of our text is that the city itself is addressed. This is addressed to Zion, Mount Zion, the city herself, Jerusalem, is addressed. And through faith in this promise, Jerusalem herself would become a herald of salvation. That broken and despised city, now bearing the most wonderful news for the region of Judea. This is what Jerusalem must do even as a broken and despised city. She must reveal the God of salvation by spreading the news of the coming restoration boldly and clearly. You see, this promise, it's received through Scripture. This promise is received through the prophecies of old. The promise is received and then it's believed and then it's shared. It's received, it's believed, and then it's shared. The promise given to Jerusalem, it must be proclaimed throughout Judea so that the whole country would know the redemption that God had in store for them. And so we see where John the Baptist fits in all this. You see, God's chosen messengers, they are not always what we might expect, but they do always proclaim in faith not yet having experienced the deliverance that was promised. Just like John. Just like John also, just like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he reflects on this often when he thinks about his own ministry to the Gentiles. As we read, for example, in the second letter to the Corinthians. Throughout history, God has appointed some very unusual messengers 
hasn't he? John in camel's hair, Paul after becoming, after persecuting the church of Christ. Unusual messengers. And I wonder also what the cities around Jerusalem would say about such bold claims made by such a broken city. But brothers and sisters, this is precisely how the glory of God is revealed through the restoration of a broken and a despised people. You see, those who receive mercy from God, they become messengers of His mercy to others. The mission of Jerusalem is the mission of the church, the Christian church, to hear and to believe and to proclaim the excellencies of her Savior and the promise of His coming. And like Jerusalem, the church, our church, it's not perfect. The church is in need of mercy. And so she is, as some might say, she is a strange herald of salvation. So often we experience this. So often the church is despised in the world. It's not submitting to The church does not submit to worldly standards of glory or of wisdom or of honor. Sometimes she is broken. Often she is oppressed, fighting against sin both within and without. The church is broken. And yet God appoints His church. He gives her guardianship of the gospel, the good news, a treasure beyond compare to share with the world. This is a wonderful commission. This is our commission from God. We can speak of Jesus Christ with surpassing joy and conviction because we are reconciled to God and we hold on to the hope of a future glory. We have such a story to tell, you could say. We have such a story to tell. Just like Jerusalem, just like Paul, we have a story to tell. We ourselves are living examples of God's mercy. We are living examples of His loving kindness. And this is my hope for you, for the congregation of Owen Sound, that the joy of the redeemed will shine forth, that your joy in the gospel will shine forth, that you will take every opportunity to comfort others with the comfort that you have received. You have received mercy from God. Your sins are covered. Your guilt is forgiven. Your guilt has been atoned for. You are reconciled to God. This is the comfort that you have received, the knowledge of your reconciliation to God. Through the blood of Christ, you have always been reconciled to God, and you are now given the promise, a hope of complete and perfect restoration. Just like the city of Jerusalem so long ago, you have received good news, good news of great joy, life-changing, transformational news of the reconciliation and the restoration found in the person of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. And if you hear today and you believe this news, then you too are a herald of salvation. The church today is like Jerusalem was in the past. Just as Jerusalem was called to ascend to the heights, to proclaim a message of deliverance loudly and clearly, The church, too, must proclaim, as we confess in the Belgian Confession, the church must proclaim the excellencies of her Savior. Beloved, we are living examples of the mercy of God, bearing a message that resounds throughout history, throughout the history 
of God's people. This brings us to our second point. Now we'll consider the message itself, the resounding message. In the first point, we focused on the messenger. We thought a lot about Jerusalem, the city Jerusalem. Now in the second point, we will look closely at the, the specific message that she is to proclaim. The message, as it is translated in the ESV, the message itself, it's only three words. The three last the three last words of verse 9, and then what follows in verse 10 and verse 11 and the rest of the chapter, it, it fills out that message. So what is the message that Jerusalem is called to proclaim? The coming of God. Behold, your God comes, she says to the cities of Judea. This is the same message of the prophet that was sent to Jerusalem in verse 3, a message that would now resound from Jerusalem to the cities of Judea, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes. Now notice, first of all, that this is a, a very personal message. Not simply the king is coming or God comes, but your God, your God comes. He is in verse 10 announced with his personal name, the name Yahweh. He is their God. The same God who redeemed them, redeemed their ancestors from Egypt and carried them through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. This is where we read that this name was revealed to the Israelites, given to Moses, the name Yahweh. And how does God come? How does He come? He comes with strength and He comes with tenderness. This is the image of God that we are given in verses 10 and 11. God comes with strength, the strength of a warrior, and He comes with the tender care and oversight of a shepherd. The strength of a warrior and the tender care of a shepherd. See, verse 10, it begins by describing His might. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be hindered or prevented. Nothing can prevent God's coming. There is no mountain too high. There is no valley too low. No obstacle can stand in front of Him. God will have His way, you could say. The expression that is used here in verse 10, verse 10a, He comes with might and He comes and His arm rules for Him. This expression, it's a, it's a reference to the power of God. The power of God used on behalf of His people. God will accomplish His purpose with His people as He has done in the past. Beloved, this is how our God reveals Himself to us through acts of salvation worked on behalf of His people. Now, the second expression in verse 10, it also describes how God is coming. This expression, it completes the thought that we see in chapter 35, verse 4. In chapter 35, verse 4, the prophet addresses the exiles directly, not the city of Jerusalem. He addresses the exiles, and he says, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God he will come to save you. Now here in our text, now he is speaking to Jerusalem. And he says something very similar. He says, look, God's reward is with him. His recompense is before him. Or as it is in the New King James Version, his work is before him. You see the Hebrew word that is used here for recompense? It has to do with the, the outcome or the product of God's work. In chapter 35, the work in view, it's redemption, it's rescue, 
God comes to rescue His people, bringing vengeance then upon His enemies. But now in chapter 40, the work in view, it's restoration. Not rescue, but restoration. The restoration of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. God comes to restore the city. And how is a city restored? With the people themselves. God comes with the people of Jerusalem. A lonely, empty city, it's restored by her missing people. This is the product of God's work of restoration. It's the people themselves, a redeemed people. They are His reward, His precious possession to be returned to His chosen city. All of Jerusalem's children will return. This understanding, it's, it's reinforced by what follows. God is with His people, and they are before Him like sheep are before a shepherd. A shepherd, sometimes leading, sometimes following, but always directing his people where he wants them to go. Back to Jerusalem, in this case, and back to the cities of Judah. This is the, this is the, the illustration that is used. God comes like a shepherd with his people before him to bring them to the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities of Judah. This is, this is the illustration of verse 11. God is like a shepherd. A good shepherd, a shepherd who carefully tends his flock. You see, a good shepherd, he keeps his flock together. He gathers them together from all places. Although some sheep may feel inclined to go their own way, a shepherd encourages, sometimes enforces the unity of his flock. One people, one flock. A good shepherd knows his flock. He knows each one. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their injuries. He knows their individual tendencies and their inclinations. A good shepherd knows their characters, you could say, and their personalities. And he knows their special circumstances. This is very clear in our text. He knows their special circumstances. Each one, whether they are young, whether they are old, whether they are with child, as it says, or recently without child, as we read in our text, God is attentive to their specific needs and their specific circumstances, the weak, the helpless, the lame, the exhausted ones, dealing with each one in accordance with their situation as seems best to Him. God is a good shepherd, and a shepherd has plans for his sheep. He knows what is best for them. He is the shepherd. They are only sheep. And so he directs them, each one of them, all of them together where he wants them to go and he leads them in love and tenderness. He leads them to safe places where they might find rest and food. Beloved, this is the wonderful illustration that we have of God in our text. This is a picture of, of loving kindness and patience. The almighty eternal God has a tender heart directed towards the welfare of His people. He is full of compassion. And for the exiles awaiting redemption in Babylon, this is a powerful image of a faithful and a loving Father. The God of all comfort promises to lead them home and to bring them back to Jerusalem. This was the message 
that Jerusalem was to proclaim to all the cities of Judea, as it is written, God is coming. He will be announced by the prophets, and He will restore His people, redeeming them, gathering them together back to the promised land. Long after Isaiah prophesied, this prophecy was confirmed in the restoration of Judah. You see, during the reign of Cyrus, many years later, God stirred up a remnant from Babylon to resettle in the land of Israel, rebuilding what had been destroyed. First Jerusalem was rebuilt, then the temple within her, and then all the cities surrounding Jerusalem were rebuilt. They were restored, and they were re-inhabited. And Jerusalem herself, that city, that broken and despised city, that city set on a hill, Mount Zion, that city became a testament, a visible sign of the loving kindness of her covenant God, a herald. That city herself became a herald, preparing the nation of Israel for the coming of her true king, God Himself, Emmanuel. Because as we know from the New Testament, this prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God Himself, Emmanuel. In Jesus, God Himself came, born as a man in the fullness of time to save His people from their sins. He was announced by prophets, not just the prophets of old, but also John the Baptist who had been sent ahead to prepare the people to receive their Savior. And He came. Jesus came. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, He came as the shepherd of His people. You see, in the person of Jesus Christ, you see God's compassion clothed in human flesh. In the person of Jesus, like nowhere else, you see the compassionate heart of God directed towards His people, the welfare of His people. He is the Good Shepherd, as He describes Himself in John 10. Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for His sheep. He takes their place. He died for them so that they could live and flourish. And He gathers His people. Jesus gathers His people, bringing them together from all places in one, into one fold, into one flock, into one church. He speaks. Our Lord and Savior, He speaks and we recognize His voice. Brothers and sisters, who is like our God? In the person of Jesus Christ, God Himself is the shepherd of His church. And He is an eternal God. He is an eternal shepherd, gathering, directing, and defending not only the people of Judah, as we read, not only directing the people of Judah back to Jerusalem, but His entire church, God directs His entire church throughout all time, through wars and through tribulations and through oppression and disease and the pitfalls of sin, God leads His people through it all, not leaving any behind. Trust in His care over you. Trust in His care over His church. He is almighty. He is eternal. He is our God and He has plans for His church wonderful plans. Through faith in Him, we have peace and we have perfect security. Because we know Jesus Christ, we can be assured 
that even before we experience trials and difficulties in this life, God has our consolation in mind. He cares for us. Beloved, this is the wonderful message of our passage. Our God, He comforts His church with the promise of deliverance so that she can bring this message of comfort to others, so that the redeemed of the Lord become heralds of His salvation. This message that we have received in faith, we pass on with joy and with thankfulness and with heartfelt conviction. We are redeemed. And now, just like the exiles returning to the land of Judah, we have a part to play in God's great work of salvation. And so we proclaim the excellencies of our Savior so that the glory of God might be revealed to the entire world. And when we proclaim this good news, we, we prepare the world to receive her King. We become heralds of God. We become heralds of God announcing His return. This is what we read in Revelation 22, verse 12. The words of Jesus to John. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. And also verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Behold, our God is coming soon. The Alpha and the Omega, the everlasting God in the person of Jesus Christ with his recompense before him. He is coming in strength and tenderness. Just as God came for the exiles in Babylon, Christ comes for us. He is coming as the righteous judge over His enemies. And He is coming as the shepherd of His sheep to gather all His people before Him, leaving none behind to lead them through the gates of the new Jerusalem. Amen.